0: Good morning. We're looking at powerful questions over the course of these Sundays together, aren't we? And today, what we're doing as we turn in our Bibles now to Matthew chapter 16, and we look beginning at verse 13 down through verse 23, we are looking at the question of all questions that are posed. It's a monumental question, it is a critical question, it is a highly personal question. And as what Jesus Christ has done with a series of questions throughout the Gospels is that he inches his followers forward while continuously confronting his opponents effectively, leading to that point where they are going to have to either accept or reject his claim as to who he is because that claim is going to then march him toward that cross where he will then die for your sins and mine. And so now that monumental, that critical, that mountaintop question that is about to be posed, that is a watershed in Christ's ministry unfolds in these verses. We're beginning with the 13th verse of Matthew's 16th chapter. You and I find these words. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? and i will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven and then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one he was the christ from that time jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. So now we're going to be looking at these verses, and what we're going to be doing is connecting dots throughout the Gospels and seeing how this passage connects to other passages, but how all of this has direct bearing upon life today and our relationship to God through Jesus Christ. Let's look to our Lord in prayer. Now, Father, as we're approaching... One of the definitive moments in the Gospel accounts. Monumental, essential question unfolding. We know, Father, that Jesus Christ is the ultimate answer. That he is the perfect answer to life's ultimate issues. Yet he also poses the perfect question
1: to force us to deal with what matters most in life and draw us, Father, to you through the work of the Holy Spirit. We're looking into your word. We're looking for your Son. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. Come here again to see Jesus, Him only. We're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a favorite story of mine.
0: Where many years ago in a resort town in Maine, a small community was having trouble financing various projects that they had before them. It was a summer day, and there were about two dozen people who were gathered together sorting out the financial difficulties. But there was a visitor who appeared on the scene. Nobody seemed to know who he was and seemed to be just visiting in the area and had dropped in on the meeting. So as they were raising questions with regard to how they were going to be raising funds... The man would raise his hand, but he would be interrupted and raise his hand again, only to be interrupted. And so finally, he settled down for the rest of the time. He kept still, and then he left early. And just as he went out the door, someone arriving late came in
1: breathlessly.
0: What was he doing here? The person shouted out. Is he going to help us? And the rest of the group turned to one another and said, Well, who are you talking about? Who was that man? And the person who had just arrived said, You don't know who he is? That was John Rockefeller. His yacht is in our harbor. Didn't you ask him to help?
1: And in despair, someone replied, We didn't. We didn't know who He is. Now, the story you and I find unfolding in front
0: of our very eyes today deals with this critical question. We've got to ask ourselves who is He? Who is this Jesus? But what is interesting here is that Jesus Christ himself poses the question and forces now his disciples to deliver the answer, which Simon will through the work of the Holy Spirit. So, what I want to do with you now, as we continue this summer series on critical questions, is to grapple now with three results to the question that Jesus Christ poses in this setting. And look for practical ways in which this relates to your life and to my life today. And the first result flows here naturally out of verse 13 down to verse 17. And we're going to phrase it like this, that as a result of Christ's question, the identity of Christ is revealed. The identity of Christ is revealed. Now, notice with me in verse 13. Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. Let's go back to that scene, Caesarea Philippi. And if you would please put it on the screen for us to ponder. Caesarea Philippi was a setting outside of the normal Jewish traffic flow. It was a Gentile region. Break down the name Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea, from the title Caesar, it was dedicated in honor to Caesar Augustus. But Caesar Augustus had delegated to a, a particular king, Herod, this region for him to oversee. When great Herod the Great died, it was given to his son, whose name was Philip, thus Philippi. It was created then to be a governmental setting, and very few Jews lived here. Very few people lived here. It was basically a remote area. Now, what Jesus does is he takes his disciples to this remote area and gets them away from the public give and take of life. And he positions them after a time of prayer, according to one of the other Gospels, so that they're going to have to grapple with the identity of Jesus Christ. So now, back to this first result. As a result of Christ's question, the identity of Christ is revealed. Now, Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Interestingly, he doesn't in this account ask, Who do people say, I am? No. Instead, he reaches deep into Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, where in Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14, there is this messianic prophecy, a promise of this one to come, who will be known as the Son of Man. The Son of Man. And he approaches in this vision given to Daniel, the Ancient of Days, God the Father, who will give God the Son dominion and glory and power and kingdoms. And now here, what Jesus does is he extracts that promise delivered to Daniel, and he presses it into the current issues of the hour, Leans forward, I can almost imagine, looks at his disciples and begins with a general question, and who do people say that the son of Man is? Now, here's what's fascinating. They pick up on the trends of the hour, as should you and as should I, as to the way in which people are thinking today in 2014. And he knows how people are categorizing Jesus. And so they're quick, and you can all see how they're peppering him with various statements. Why? Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now here is what's interesting. There had been prior to this a delegation sent by the people, the leaders in Jerusalem to John the Baptist. You and I are informed of what took place in John chapter 1, verse 19. Jews sent him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And John the Baptist confessed and did not deny, and he confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then, are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And they said to him, who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Now, what you and I need to do is to ask ourselves, what is it that people are asking? What are the critical questions right now in 2014 culture? where people are longing for answers to the ultimate issues of life. Because just then, as Jesus posed those questions, people were trying to figure out what this was all about. Things are happening. Life is changing. And likewise, even in the Middle East right now, things are happening. Life is changing. What is going on? Jesus then starts off with a general question before he poses the personal question. And if you love Jesus and want to tell others about Jesus, it's wise to get them to start talking about what is happening generally and what their opinions are and posing questions rather than prematurely delivering answers. I love the statement out of mere Christianity delivered by C.S. Lewis, don't you? It's well known. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him speaking of Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as
1: a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis then goes on to
0: critique, this is the one thing we must not say Through the course of our years here together, if you are new, well, you're probably still familiar with what is known as the trilemma. It is sometimes posed in terms of a question, is Jesus Lord, liar, a lunatic? Because somehow, someway, a person's going to have to put Jesus in, in a certain framework, a certain category. It is incredibly wise that we keep posing questions to get people to think about who matters most. And if he's a liar, how could a liar then claim to be the son of God and then three days later be raised from the dead unless that is verification of his claim? If he's a lunatic, then you want to then track through the gospel accounts and analyze the psychological balance that Jesus Christ demonstrates in both private and public settings. But if he is Lord, then you're going to have to assess your life in relationship to Jesus and ask yourself, then, what does this mean for me personally? It's not enough to be religious, and it's not enough to have opinions about Jesus. What does this entail of me in relationship to God through Christ? Now, what Jesus does at this point is he moves from the general question to the personal question. This needs to be done in parenting. This needs to be done in the classroom. This needs to be done out in our normal relationships if we are serious about what matters most. And now Jesus gets personal, and he said to them,
2: But who do you? And that's plural. Who do you say that I am? In verse 16, Simon Peter replies, You are the Christ,
0: the Son of the living God. Break it down. Now, the word Christ in the New Testament is the same word for Messiah in the Old Testament. In other words, now, he has heard the phrase, son of man. He knows that that promise in Daniel chapter 7 pertains to Messiah. By saying, then, you are the Christ, he's linking Jesus, then, to that Messiah promise of the Old Testament. And now he is putting two plus two together, and he's coming up with four. But furthermore, he goes on to say, the son of the living God. Now, you and I know that when it came to that point in the baptism of Jesus Christ, where Christ had now gone into the water, the Spirit of God descended as a dove, and coming upon him, Matthew wrote in chapter 3, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son. In whom I am well pleased. What Peter is now doing is he's taking the Son of Man promise from the Old Testament and the idea of the Son in relationship to the Father at the baptism. He is connecting the dots and he is delivering the goods and he is establishing in front of the other disciples. The identity of Jesus Christ, in response to that question we pondered last week, that as the winds and the waves settled simultaneously, who is this, was that question. And as you and I recognize, if you've spent time on the waters, the winds and the waves do not calm immediately simultaneously, when the winds calm, the waves continue. For both to be calmed simultaneously means we are dealing with authority. Who is this, was that question. And now Peter delivers the goods. And what he says, you are the Christ. The son of the living God. What I want you to see at this point is critical. Peter is the avenue.
2: He is not the source of this statement. In verse 17,
0: Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, by Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, and just as at that baptism... The father said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So now here is Jesus saying in relationship to that same father, that it is not flesh and blood that has revealed this to you, Peter, but my father who's in heaven. And now what Jesus is doing at this point is that he's affirming what Peter has been used to reveal, the identity of Jesus Christ. Those of you that love football probably know in the history of the game that there was an undefeated team years ago, Miami Dolphins, great coach, Don Shula, and he was at the height of popularity when he was finding that he was running on fumes, and so he and his wife decided to get away to a small town in Maine, hoping not to be recognized, and getting a bit of needed rest. Seemed like the press followed him wherever the, he went. They entered the theater. They wanted to see a movie, but as they entered the theater, everyone in attendance stood up and applauded. Well, Shula, you, if, if you know Shula, you know he, he shows his emotion. He was disgusted and leaned over to the fellow next to him after the movie had started and said, I didn't think you would recognize
2: me. And the fellow replied, am I supposed to know you? And Shula shot back, well, I'm Don Shula, head coach of the Miami Dolphins.
0: The man responded, well, that's nice. But we applauded because the manager
2: said that if two more people didn't show up, he wouldn't run the movie. a failure to identify.
0: Now here's the problem. There has been a failure with regard to identification. Who is this? The disciples cry out that even the winds and the waves obey Him as they're struck as fishermen out on that sea at their point of expertise They know that when the
1: winds die, the waves continue.
2: But simultaneously, how do you fit all this together? Who is
1: this man?
0: And Peter says, you are the Christ. Reaching back to Daniel chapter 7, 13, and 14, linking this to the idea of Messiah, and he says, you are the Son of the living God, linking together the baptism of Jesus, where there's this voice bellowing out of the heavens, confirming Jesus Christ as being in relationship to the Father.
2: So now what you and I have to do
0: is we've got to
2: understand
0: that we've got to link the who to the what. Before we talk about what Jesus Christ did, dying for our sins, we've got to talk about who Jesus is. Because if he's the sinless one, then the sinless one becomes the perfect sacrifice for the sinful ones, you and me. In other words, we're linking Bethlehem to Calvary. The who with the what. Now, Peter is setting in motion a chain of events that are going to unfold here naturally, but what you and I have got to do through a series of questions like Jesus Christ does is to get people to connect. And now
1: Peter is beginning to connect. Are you? There's our first result.
0: As a result of Christ's question number one, the identity of Christ is revealed. But a second result flows out of verse 18, down through verse 20. That as a result of Christ's question, the church of Christ is promised. Now, we'll take it slow, because this has been a tug of war throughout the course of years. Those of you that have come out of Catholicism know the tug of war pretty well. Pick it up now, verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter. Stop right there.
2: The Greek word for Peter is Petras. Petras. He goes on to say, on, on this rock,
0: the Greek word there is not Petras, it is Petra. Those of you that remember that old scene group petra. I view that now as traditional music, not contemporary. Too old for me. I tell you you are Peter, Petros, and on this Petra
2: I will build not your church. My church. Now this is fascinating. I remember
0: when I had left medicine, gone into graduate school, Trinity, daily I'd go out for a run. And one day, as I was running just outside of Half Day Road in Deerfield, I found that there were some other guys that were wanting to run with me, and lo and behold, it was guys from a Catholic seminary nearby. I thought, this is going to be Interesting. And so, as we began our run, we struck up a conversation. And finally, we stopped because, well, I had some questions. Some questions that I wanted to pose to them. Because I never assume that just because you're religious, you're a believer. Neither should you, neither should I. So, I, I knew that that seminary didn't get people into the scriptures, they got them into the teachings of the early church. The, Church fathers. So I began a series of questions. Why do you think that in Matthew chapter 16, and I know that you all believe that Peter was the first pope, why does Jesus speak of Peter as Petras? And yet he goes on to say, and on this Petra, I will build not Peter's church, but my church. And they got to talking. So, I got another question. Why is it that the early church fathers, whom I know you guys study and study deeply, Origen, Chrysostom, and the likes, Augustine, some argued that this is Peter, but others argued it was the confession of Peter, and others argued that Jesus Christ was the rock? Question. And why is it in First Peter chapter 2, Peter referred to Jesus as the stumbling stone? Question. And if your early church fathers couldn't agree, why is it and how could it be if Peter was the first pope that when Peter died, John the Apostle was still alive? That means that Peter's supposed successor was over John the Apostle.
2: How does that work itself out? Questions. Just got questions for you. And they continued their
0: run. And I stood there with my questions, you see. But I began running with them, and again, just a few more, among other things. It doesn't say here anything about people's succession. When I got back to my classes... One of my professors was Dr. D.A. Carson, who's written a monumental commentary on Matthew.
2: Listen to some of his thoughts. The objection that Peter considers Jesus the rock
0: is insubstantial because metaphors are commonly used in the scriptures. For example, Jesus builds his church, yet Paul is an expert builder. Jesus is the church's foundation, 1 Corinthians 3.11. But in Ephesians 2.19 and 20, the apostles and the prophets are the foundation. Here Peter has the keys, but in Revelation 1.18, Jesus has the keys. In John 9.5, Jesus is the light of the world, but in Matthew 5.14, his disciples are. Dr. Carson goes on to say, none of these pairs threatens Jesus' uniqueness. They just simply show how metaphors need to be understood in context. So in this passage, Jesus owns the church and builds the church. The text says nothing about Peter's successors, infallibility, or exclusive authority. What the New Testament does show is that Peter is the first to make this formal confession. In other words, he is in short first among equals, and the foundation of such men. And so now, what you and I find is that Peter then is the avenue, not the source of this identification. And now we're talking about the church. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Several years back and from this pulpit, Dr. Josef Zahn spoke. One of the great evangelical heroes in Eastern Europe, impactful prior to the fall of the Berlin Wall, Chuck Olson tells the story in a small classroom in Cluj, Romania. The temperature was cold, the lighting low, as the professor lectured. Joseph Zahn shifted uncomfortably in his wooden chair. Earlier, he had asked a question that seemed to enrage the professor, something about the historicity of scripture. And now Joseph felt the professor's attention return to him. We no longer need the old fables, the professor said abruptly. And watch you. Within a generation, the church will die out. Now, Coulson writes, at first, his vehemence startled Joseph. But he reasoned, people don't usually become angry unless they feel threatened. Then Joseph thought about the words of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Matthew. Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What Yosef had seen of communism seemed a fair translation of the gates of hell. Unparaphrasing the verse in his mind, Yosef realized that to those like the professor and the present regime, the church indeed posed a threat I will build my church in Eastern Europe. And communism will not prevail against it. And when the class ended, Yosef stuffed his books into his battered briefcase and thought, and what I believe will determine how I act. And so I have to decide who I will believe and who will be my Lord, this communist professor or Christ. And I thought about that as we were giving Yosef breakfast in our home before he headed back up into the room, my son Ben's room, to spend the night. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And you know what grabs my attention at this point is this when you look at that word binding and the word loosing, it carries with it the idea here of that which has already been bound and that which has already been loosed. In other words, it's simply describing the terms of salvation, which Peter would demonstrate again and again and again in the book of Acts. And so now, Peter and the disciples have the key of the teaching of salvation by grace through faith in Christ and Christ alone. Remember that time, those of you that own a house, that first house you purchased? Realtor was showing you that house. She was showing you that house. She'd walk up to that house, get the key box open, and then go to the door and with that key unlock the door and let you in. She was not, or he was not the owner of that house. What the realtor was, was the agent for the owner. Now what God is saying here is, Peter, disciples, you have the key. Salvation by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. you got to start with the who before you get to the what. This is the key to life. This is what unlocks this whole story. The binding, the loosing, which has already been established in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples astoundingly to tell no one at this point. He
1: was was the Christ. Now we're putting this together. And what we're
0: saying is you've got to figure out the who to get to the what. What? You've got to start with Bethlehem to get to Calvary. You've got to start with the promises of the Old Testament to get to the Messiah of the New Testament. We are connecting dots. But now, a third result unfolds, and I want you to see how all this fits together, and this stirs the heart when you begin to think about the connections here. That thirdly, as a result of Christ's question, The mission of Christ is explained. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem. That time. Once his identity was exposed, then his ministry is explained. Not vice versa. He says he must go to Jerusalem. It's a mandate, not an option. And notice the specificity here. Suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. Now the disciples could watch and see how that would unfold in the coming days and check those off and say, he was true. He's Lord, not liar or lunatic. And be killed. And that's true. So he's not, he's not liar or lunatic. He's Lord. Crunch time. And on the third day, That's how specific he is. Who is this man that has authority not over the winds and the waves, but the grave itself? And on the third day be raised. Now, remember, we established here that Peter was not the source of that statement, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He was the avenue of that statement. That God the Father was the source. Why is that important? Satan now will come and try to mimic God the Father by utilizing the same avenue, Peter. Now, Satan appears on the scene. Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him, saying, Far
2: be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. How do you say far?
0: be it from you, Lord, unless you're trying to take lordship over Christ as Lord.
1: Can't have it both ways. Look what comes next.
0: But he turned and said to Peter,
2: get behind me, Peter. No. He said, get Behind me, Satan. Satan now has tried to take the same avenue and now
0: distort in order to get people to say, okay, we've established the who, but I can keep them from the what? That cross. Which has been his mode of operation over the course of time, whether it be Herod attempting to kill off the children in Bethlehem. But here is the critical thought that comes to my mind. It was the wilderness experience of Jesus Christ himself. What happened after Jesus was identified at the baptism? You are the Christ, this is my beloved son, In whom I'm well pleased. Jesus moves into the wilderness immediately after the baptism. Watch out, after the mountaintop comes the valley. After the spiritual highs come the spiritual lows of life. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. So, what happened in the wilderness with the temptation? First temptation if you are the Son of God, command these stones become bread. What had God the Father said? This is my beloved Son. What has Peter said now as the avenue of truth? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What was the second temptation in that wilderness? If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. In other words now, there is a direct connection between what had been revealed about Jesus from the Father and Satan's temptation of Jesus in the wilderness to what is revealed about Jesus via the lips of Peter and the temptation of Jesus via the lips of Peter. Do you see the connections? Boy, is Satan boring. He can't come up with a creative idea.
2: He's simply repeating himself. It's like what Yogi Bear says, Deja vu all over again. See it? Do you see how all this fits together? Have you ever connected the baptism,
0: this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, to the temptations, Matthew 3 and then chapter 4, if you are the Son of God, to Peter's confession in chapter 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and then Satan immediately appearing on the scene. And thwarting, so he hopes, movement. Because once the who has been established, he's still hanging on to the what, trying to keep Jesus from getting to
1: that cross. But Jesus calls his bluff. He knows the source was not the
0: father, but Satan. Same avenue, but opposite source now. Get behind me, Satan. Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man, as was the case in his downfall, the angelic downfall. So now what you've done, you have connected. You have taken questions, and you have seen how the connections through the questions flow naturally you have connected Bethlehem to Calvary. You've connected the who to the what. You've connected the baptism, followed by the wilderness temptation, to the confession of Peter, followed by the temptation via Peter. It all comes together. And now what Jesus is doing is setting in motion a chain of events. Because once you answer who he is, you've got to deal with what he did. He died for your sins. And we're saved by grace through faith in him, the who, in him
2: alone
1: for our salvation.
2: What was he doing here? Is he going to help us? And the rest said, who are you talking about? Who was that man? The person who had just arrived said, you don't know That was John Rockefeller.
0: His yacht was in our harbor. Didn't you get his help?
2: And in despair, someone said, no. We didn't get his help. We didn't know who he is.
1: And someone greater arrives on the scene. And via Peter's lips... You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he died. And on the third day, he rose from the dead. Let's stand together. We see how this confession then creates the salvation timeline. we see the who prepares for the what.
0: How Bethlehem prepared for Calvary. Why Jesus came into this world via virgin birth so that as the sinless one, he could then go to Calvary and die for the sinful ones. So we need to be able to cultivate critical monumental questions to a directionless, disoriented society and be used by you to draw people to you. But if there's one here in this service or in any of these services who has not embraced Jesus as Lord and as Savior, I pray that they will look at the powerful, powerful unfolding of this truth that Matthew has provided us And put faith and trust in
1: Jesus alone
0: for salvation.
1: Take them to Jesus and to that cross. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.